If this is your first time here, welcome to the Startup Tank. The Startup Tank Climate Investor Pitch Show is what it sounds like, a climate shark tank where we bring on the world's most promising early stage climate companies, folks that are building the next uh, sustainable development or circular economy company, changing the world while also building massive businesses in the process. Uh, this is all brought to you by Forward VC and our climate syndicate. We invest in early stage, so pre-seed and seed climate companies, like some of the ones you'll be seeing here today. And alongside myself, I've got the one and only Craig Lawrence from Energy Transition Ventures. I'll give him a sec. Uh, I'll have him introduce himself in a sec. If this is your first time at the Startup Tank, you can find out more about us and what we do at thestartuptank.com. The basic format, you've seen it before, but this is climate style which means we have companies actually doing something that matters. Companies will get five minutes to present to our panel. We uh, unfortunately lost one of our panelists to a hospitalization. I guess there's a first time for everything once we uh, once we start to grow. Excited to have all of you guys on board. I'm Matt Ward. I'm the syndicate lead and founder of Forward VC and the Startup Tank. And we have Mr. Craig Lawrence from Energy Transition Ventures. Let's pull Craig in here as well. And Craig, I would love if you would share a little bit more of yourself. What what do you do? What's your background with ETV? Yeah, sure. Um, and you guys can hear me okay? Loud and clear. Sounds good. Awesome. Yeah. So uh, thanks for, for including me in this. Uh, my name is Craig Lawrence. I'm a, a partner and co-founder at, at a venture capital fund called Energy Transition Ventures. We're in Texas. We've got um, folks in both Houston and in Austin. And uh, we, we very deliberately named the fund Energy Transition Ventures so people would know what we do. We invest in really, you know, anything and everything that is driving or benefiting from a transition off of our traditional sources of energy to, to cleaner, more sustainable um, sources and uses of, of energy. And uh, we are early stage, generally kind of seed through Series B, occasionally some pre-seed uh, investing as well. Um, the fund's been around for about a year and a half. Uh, my my co-founder and myself have been in the um, energy sectors for a couple decades each. Uh, I spent a decade in the solar industry at a number of companies, including Sun Edison, SolarBridge, uh, SunPower. Um, and before that, I have an engineering background, studied mechanical engineering at University of Texas and at Stanford University and uh, worked as an engineer for, for the first half of my career before jumping into the dark side of finance. Um, so I think that's probably about it for me. And on our side, I run Forward VC's Climate Syndicate. So we, we're really focused on companies that have a real world type tangible impacts companies moving the world forward it does not have to be hardware but for us the next um carbon accounting platform or uh carbon credit marketplace doesn't doesn't necessarily cut it we we want folks that are really changing the world for the better in a in a forcible way because we all know that diets and eating healthy are a great way to be healthy and yet we have a population that's overweight. Sometimes we got to fix the incentives and we've got to have a little bit of push comes to shelf. And I think we've got that with a lot of the companies here today. So we've got seven incredible companies planned for you. Before we jump into the lineup, if you haven't subscribed yet, be sure to subscribe. We're on all your major podcasting platforms, thestartuptank.com for more details and to subscribe. And you can find us on YouTube, just about anywhere where podcasts 
are um, available. Uh, now, each company is going to have five minutes followed by 10 minutes, 10, 15 minutes of Q&A at the end. If you guys have any questions, you can share those in the YouTube chat or in LinkedIn, the startuptank.com slash YouTube to access that. And now, without further ado, I would hand things over to our first startup of the night, um, Windscape. So Jason and Eric are here from Windscape. This is a, a very interesting company that we've been talking to. They are changing the changing the game when it comes to energy on the, the wind side, which is definitely uh, in the air these days, so to speak, as we have more and more problems with uh, energy production. You guys ready? Hi, can you hear me okay? Got you loud and clear, Eric. Your five minutes starts now. Let's hear it. Well, thank you very much. I look forward to hearing your questions. So I am Eric, and this is uh, Jason. And I have a deep experience in the wind industry, renewables, co-founding, and being chief business development officer. Jason has deep experience in machine learning, including as co-founder of the Uber AI Labs. So I am the wind guy, Jason's the ML guy. In wind, the problem is that turbines sit there and wait for the wind to get there before making adjustments in important components like blade pitch and yaw, operating in the past, not knowing the future. That's a little bit like driving a car and only being able to look out the back, not seeing the road. This results in lost energy and surprise gusts damaging important components. For driving, you would look down the road. For wind, the option is to know what the wind is coming to your wind farm. We do this with a network of sensors and machine learning delivering preview data predictions to the wind farm. That results in increased revenue and lower maintenance costs. Hey, so I'm, I'm Jason. Um, a bit more on what we're building uh, technically. So we're deploying a network of pressure sensors around wind farms. Uh, we gather pressure data from these sensors in real time, bring it all back to a central node, and ultimately slurp that data off to the cloud. Uh, in the cloud, we develop our models and then uh, deploy them from the cloud back to the local site so that they're able to run locally with uh, low, low latency and connect to customer systems. A little bit on what we've done so far. Uh, first, we already have an issued uh, US patent on the technology. It's pretty broad. It covers us in wind energy and other spaces. Uh, we quickly built the first generation of sensors <clears throat> and deployed them at UC Davis near us in San Francisco. Did sort of a one-third scale test pilot. Uh, the goal of this study was to see whether using a network of pressure sensors, we can predict what the wind is at the top of a, a 30 meter tower. We found that using machine learning, in fact, it was pretty predictable. So here you see two curves, the actual wind and our predictions of the wind. Um, note that here we're predicting not just the wind right now, but the wind 15 seconds in advance. We have this visibility because no matter where the wind is coming from, we have pressure sensors upwind. Based on the promise of that pilot, um, we're building the next generation of sensors targeting about a $100 bomb. And uh, as quickly as we can, getting these sensors in the hands of a couple of pilot customers uh, near us in California, as well as one with a national renewable energy lab called Awaken. Uh, this is in Oklahoma. A little bit on our competition. Um, one competing technology is Doppler LiDAR. Uh, this is 
using lasers to kind of see see what the air is doing ahead of the turbine. Um, people have been working on this for a while. If it could be made very cheap, then it could could work. Um, but unfortunately, it's far too expensive and requires a lot of maintenance. However, just the amount of dollars that have poured into this chunk of the industry proves the value of knowing the wind ahead of time. Our market is defined by the $90 billion in electricity that wind plants sell every year. We expect to be able to increase that through energy capture and lower maintenance and other services by $5 billion and cap will capture about 30% of that for 1.5 billion song. We've talked about increased energy and increased turbine life. We'll also be able to play in energy markets as well as the wind energy asset management world. We can also apply this in completely different markets like solar, airports, EV toll, et cetera. Our One business minute, model is a SaaS, thank you, is a SaaS with small hardware enabled. The important thing on this screen is the 80% margin and the for, that we'll operate under and the very fast payback for the customer. For uh, year five, we predict, predict 125 million in gross revenue, reaching only 8% of our market. Our team is uh, diverse, but very strong. Uh, we have about four people uh, at the point at this point and growing. Our advisor network has deep experience across the industry, uh, including wind farm controls, machine learning, and growing wind companies. We are raising two million, and with this, we'll complete our uh, pilots that Jason described, and also our minimum viable product, and reach our first commercial contracts for revenue ahead of our Series A. And time is up. Love to hear your questions. Perfect. Let's do some questions. Thanks, guys for thanks, guys for sharing um, transparency. I've spoken with them already. Find the concept fascinating. While I'm pulling, uh, while I'm pulling Craig in, a question I have for you guys: It wind is notoriously slow as a moving market. How how do you make this venture scale fast? Well, the uh, the primary mover is the fact that this will be saving customers, saving wind farm owner operators uh, money, making uh, making them more money, and uh, providing a payback in less than a third of a year. Uh, and then it's also very inexpensive to deploy. So in our initial years, as we uh, grow and grow in reputation, we can even deploy this for free and uh, operate under an energy services agreement uh, model such that we can prove ourselves to the customer before they even need to uh, pay us money. Craig, I'll let you... On top of that, I should say, many of these wind farms are owned by large fleets. So we're convinced that, that we can sell and convince one wind farm of part of a large fleet, like especially one of our pilot customers, will be able to roll out to the rest of their fleet because they're already convinced and excited. Craig, I'll let you, I'll let you take it away and then come back with a couple more. 
Awesome. And full disclosure, I've spoken with Eric and, and Jason at length uh, in the past and had a lot of my questions already answered, but I'm, I'll, I'll probably repeat a couple, but I'm going to ask one that I don't recall if I asked before, uh, which was the sort of origin of this idea. Um, Eric, obviously you've been in wind. Um, Jason, uh, I'm not sure if you have or coming from a, from a different space, but sort of what's, you know, what, what prompted this idea? What, you know, what, how did it originate? Sure. And of course, nice to see you again, Craig. Uh, there's a uh, uh, researcher, inventor, and entrepreneur named uh, Richard Ely, Dr. Richard Ely. Uh, and uh, I knew him uh, starting 15 years ago in the wind industry. And he uh, described to me, even back at that period, his uh, concept for increasing the information that wind farms had to operate more efficiently. And um, over that period of knowing him, he patented it and started working on it. Uh, and uh, I was talking with him, some advisory, some interest over that time. Uh, when I uh, left my last uh, role with Ensemble Energy, he and I started talking about commercializing it because the, the enabling technologies of the sensors and the machine learning were, were converging to make this finally possible. Uh, so uh, based on his research, based on a lot of due diligence that I went to, through and ultimately Jason went through, um, we decided to jump in to this and uh, dedicate our efforts to it. Winscape purchased all of the technology and the IP completely from uh, Dr. Ely. And uh, then uh, he, he pulled back from the work world 100% because of uh, health reasons, actually. So. Uh, we are uh, taking this forward. Uh, awesome. And then what is, um, uh, what is the, how do I think about the cost of this uh, to deploy um, at a wind farm and, and then also your pricing? Oh, the, the cost of this is um, very low and the, uh, uh, as Jason mentioned, the boxes each are going to be about $100, and you might think about uh, maximum uh, for either math, easy math, 100 boxes at a wind farm. So, you know, think, um, think of $10,000 for that raw uh, hardware and then some supporting hardware and uh, back office and so on. Um, so it, it'll be more in the early years, but as we... Um, move forward, we'll reach our economies of scale. And that's, think of that as, you know, like a 10th or a fifth of the cost of the revenue that we expect from uh, customers each year. But I mean, that that is, I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't fully understand the operating costs and the building costs of a wind, wind farm, but that's peanuts. I mean, that's a rounding error. Those costs for someone, you know, either building or operating a, you know, 100 megawatt, 200 megawatt wind farm, right? Agree, and compared also to the expected increase in revenue that will enable, call it uh, $300,000 for uh, an average size wind farm. So uh, that's also peanuts compared to their benefit. And, and does any modification need to be done to the turbine itself or the turbines themselves or the 
uh, control systems in order to get that additional revenue from your your sensor and and machine learning models? I can take that one, I guess. Um, so we have a couple different a uh, couple different value streams, and they depending on which control system we're interacting with. So some of the control systems on turbines, they're going to be responding slowly enough and they're controlled at a high enough level that we can just interface directly with the software. So with the SCADA level controllers, in other words, our, our models can be running, predicting the wind, figuring out what to do and sending, sending control signals from our cloud software to their cloud software. So it should be a relatively easy integration. Um, Eric mentioned the energy trading angle, which was the kind of third, third bullet point on one of the slides. For that angle, traders and sellers of electricity are already set up well to ingest data from other sources. So we can just get them the data however we want. And they're already, their software is already set up to receive that data. Um, the final uh, bullet point is to interface with the pitch controllers. So this is the controller on the system that controls how aggressively each blade is pitched as it, as it swings around. That'll be a tighter, tighter timeline, require a faster integration. So that might be kind of the third product feature we roll out uh, that would require uh, interfacing with the control system, feeding data in. Most control systems are able to take in, or rather it's easy to engineer a control system to be able to take in external data about what the future will hold, kind of mathematically speaking. But in practice, that integration might be a little tricky. We will work with um, third-party manufacturers of controllers to get that information in. And in fact, one of our company advisors is one of the most prolific control board designers. So he'll help us directly integrate that into his, uh, his system. Awesome. And last question for me is, you know, what, what do you, what do you see as the likely outcome for this company, assuming success? Uh, sure. Uh, the, um, frankly, the, I think the most likely outcome is that after some years we're, uh, acquired by either one of the large, uh, providers of asset management services to wind farm owner operators who are themselves being acquired by even larger pan industry companies and or one of the uh, wind turbine OEMs that says, uh, you know, we spend tens of millions of dollars trying to eke another half a percent efficiency out of our turbines. How about if we also just package Windscape and out of the box provide another two or three percent efficiency uh, over our uh, competitors. Uh, so, you know, GE, Wind, Vestas, Siemens, Gamesa, one of those. Also, the, the, another possibility is as we grow, you know, first we get the revenue relatively early so we can support the companies, the companies scaling and growth. We're also fundamentally collecting this data and we have this sort of software level, this platform play for data and machine learning on wind. I think we could become the company that's the best in the world at processing and understanding wind data. We could expand from there into you know solar and other nearby nearby areas. But um, fundamentally, our model would also be pretty defensible because unlike other kind of software ML platform plays, even in renewables, we control the source of the data. So we have access to this high frequency pressure data, which helps us, enables us to model all the local wind. So as we scale that, that could become a very meaningful platform, um, especially as energy markets start swinging around more and more, as we try to get to higher renewable penetration, the value of data is increasing. Um, so I could see us scaling for quite a while without being uh, quickly acquired. Right. Thank you. Thank you.
that was kind of the nature of my question is there's a lot of wind startups. There's not a lot of big outcomes for wind startups. There's a lot of sub hundred million dollar outcomes and not just what it could be the outcome, but what is your actual goal with the business? What does success look like? Jason, what's your riff on? Yeah, on that, I don't know. Based on sure, what you, you just said. Either of us could, could answer this, I guess. Um, success for yeah. me looks like um, being able to meaningfully impact the percent of wind energy that the US or the world is using daily to power the planet, right? So for every extra megawatt hour we can help our customers generate, that's a megawatt hour that's not coming from coal or natural gas. That's a first order effect, right? As soon as, as we increase that production, that's directly offsetting carbon. A second order effect is by lowering the levelized cost of energy for all of our customers, we help them make decisions to deploy a wind farm where previously that would not have been quite worth it. But now that we lower that overall cost, we can start putting wind farms in places that they wouldn't have previously been profitable. So we can, the second order effect is we accelerate the rollout of wind and we get to the point where our planet is not using fossil fuels. Exactly. Yeah, I think we're pretty aligned on that. And on that route, what's the fastest way to get there? How do you acquire customers? What does the sales cycle look like? Do you need sales teams? How do you scale this? Well, we'll we'll definitely eventually need sales teams. My my career has been business development and new technologies and renewable energy. Uh, so at, at first, I'll be heading up uh, biz dev, and the, the sales cycle looks like. Uh, working with the asset managers of wind farms who regularly make financial decisions on the scale of our uh, SaaS license fee, especially on the fast payback that we're offering. And uh, yeah. over time, we'll go straight to them and say, hey, look, this is working for all of your competitors. Uh, you know, Enter into a SaaS license fee uh, with us and we'll deploy this very quickly and and give you uh, a a benefit if you don't like it we'll remove it but it won't ever impact or uh, interfere with your wind farm operations so that's a very easy decision for you early on we'll even accelerate that decision as i said before by offering that energy services agreement model where they don't even have to put out any money up front and the reaching the customer process is uh, the basic SaaS model of uh, direct networking, sales, outreach, uh, those torturous uh, conferences that you stand around at your booth and, and talk to people, etc. Very cool. Very cool. Well, I, I think you know that I, I find this very meaningful. It's something we're interested in at Forward because it is marginal increase on a very large scale and that makes it very large scale impact we're uh we're in the energy space now so we might as well um kick things over to another energy company we'll have this be the little commercial break to keep you wondering who um if this is your first time listening this is the startup tank climate investor pitch show we get incredible investors on that are a little bit friendlier than Mr. Uh, Mr. Friendly, Mr. Whatever his name is, uh, Smiley O'Leary, and we talk climate companies. We do this twice a month, generally Mondays at 5 p.m. CET. To learn more and subscribe, visit thestartuptank.com. 
And if you're an accredited investor, we're not soliciting you to do anything. But if you were to go over to our website, you could find out about the type of climate companies that we invest in. That's forward, the number four, ward.vc. We invest in companies that move the world forward. Like these ones here. We've been in energy. Let's keep the, let's keep the theme going and hand the ball to Paulina. Paulina is doing solar energy on the water, turning uh, our, turning our, um, yeah, solar energy on the water. I don't have a great way of transitioning that with a cool transition, but it's an incredible technology and company. So I will let Paulina take things away. Learned about them from Techstars, and you will see why Techstars and I were both very impressed by Paulina and what they've built. You ready, thank Paulina? Yes, always ready. Thank you very much, Matt, for introduction. Let me share my screen. Can you hear this? We see the screen. Let me know when you're ready and your five minutes will go. Hello, everyone. Happy to be here. I'm Polina, founder and CEO at Heliorec. With our solution, we want to solve three problems. First one, we need to cut greenhouse gas emissions in Europe and in the world as fast as we can. Cost of electricity is very high in many locations and a lack of land space. So by 2050 in Europe, we cannot take any land for energy generation anymore. With our solution, we have one component is hardware. So we place the solar panels on the water uh, in the most cost and eco-efficient way. So this uh, blue part, we manufacture ourselves in Europe. We install the solar panels on top of it and deploy the, the power plant for our customers. Cost of our electricity will be twice less than electricity from the grid, and we don't occupy any land space. We are focusing on near shore locations, where half of global population live. And you see, this is our last installation was done in Belgium in Ostende port and system could survive wind speed more than 100 kilometers an hour. And the second component of our uh, startup is uh, SAS. So we develop a dashboard where customers can observe uh, behavior of uh, floating solar power plants. We capture all data wind, wave, uh, tides in one place, and it helps the customer optimize the pressure maintenance. As well, we can do the prediction with machine learning how much energy we will generate from specific spot in five years. And the customers as well can control the power plant remotely. Typical customers are ports, utilities, uh, municipalities, and the coastal areas. So basically, any companies near the, the shoreline who would like to reduce CO2 emissions and save money on electricity cost. Floating solar is a fast growing industry nowadays with annular growth more than 33%. You see, this is potentially we can install 15 megawatts in uh, Valencia port and we don't occupy a lot of uh, water space and it doesn't disturb any maritime activities. Uh, we did a bottom-up uh, approach for market size assessment. So we are targeting only Europe, uh, only our customer segments, so ports, uh, utilities, and uh, municipalities in Europe. So, and we come up with our target market, at least 126 million by 2026 is our current sales strategy. We are operating in harsh conditions at low cost. So we uh, invented and patented hydrolog technology. 
It helps to keep systems stable and robust. As well, we use recycled plastic to produce our floating system, and it helps us to reduce uh, our costs three times compared in with uh, our competitors who is also operating in offshore conditions. So we sell hardware, uh, we sell access to dashboard, and we also sell the services, engineering, installation, operation, maintenance. We can do different uh, offers, sell only floating system or sell floating system and photovoltaic equipment or all uh, our services in the same package. We are very experienced team about myself. I'm working in energy sector more than 20 years. As well, I am a winner of Women in Green Tech. Joshua is COO, uh, has experience uh, to run startup in the past, and he take care of our operation activities. Hashim, the PhD from Ecole Centrale de Nan, CTO, and Peter has more than 40 years of experience in the maritime sector using the business development. So far, we already raised uh, the precede half million. Uh, and uh, we installed two projects, we made a patent, we registered trademark. Uh, now we are opening opened our seat round and we are looking for achieve milestone to prove our technology at bigger scale. So we plan to install one megawatt next year, expand our manufacturing line, do certification, more the patents, and of course, marketing and sales. By 2025, we will go to licensing model and it will help us to scale up faster. By 2026, we will save a lot of CO2, 8 million euro for our customers and land space. This is me, I'm doing uh, operation maintenance of our installation in Belgium. Thank you very much. Um, so to highlight, so we already generate revenue, uh, we have a patents, we Tech starts by a company. We are open at our sit round. Time is us. up, and you are awesome. Sorry, Thank I you. forgot to give you the one minute, but I gave you a little extra time at the end to to make up for it. Let's let's bring Craig back in here since Craig is Mister Energy, so to speak, and which means we should let him uh, take kick things off on the question side of things. Uh -huh. What do you want to know from Hilo Rec? No one has called me that before, but uh, uh, so excellent. Hey, Polina, thank you. Very nice presentation. Um, you know, I've been uh, I've, I've been in, in the solar industry, but I've never done anything with floating solar. But, I, you know, I've been seeing sort of projects for the last decade or so of people doing stuff like this. And I'm just wondering, and you showed a little bit on the competitive landscape, what could you talk a little bit more about what you see your advantages are over other mounting solutions for floating solar? So we manufacture system uh, with hydrolog technology. So it works very simple. And uh, basically we capture water inside the floater and this extra water works as a ballast, but it is just water around. We don't pay for this ballast. So if wind will blow, our system will not flip because it becomes so heavy. That's why it can survive in windy and wavy conditions. In terms of compare us with uh, other, uh, other companies, floating solar developers. So we have two types. One who is operating in lakes. So there are no wind waves, just a very calm water. So we will be a little bit more expensive than this technology because they use 
conventional blow molded uh, technique to manufacture floaters. And if wind will blow, the system will flip. So, but they are operating in the lakes. Second type of custom uh, competitors, uh, offshore applications. Usually uh, they use big metallic structures. And you can imagine if you want to place a lot of solar panels in the water in harsh conditions, you need to build a huge area of metallic structure in the sea. And the cost is uh, very, very high. So their cost three times more than our, if we compare levelized cost of energy, because they use expensive metallic structure. Okay, well, you answered my second question, which is sort of where can you install this? And uh, yeah, I guess most of the pictures I've seen have been nice calm lakes, but you guys are proposing actually offshore solar and what will it take to be, uh, you know, what we, we call in the industry bankable? Like what, you know, will, will financing companies finance like actual offshore solar today, um, uh, do, you know, what do you have to do to sort of prove that, you know, your technology won't flip in a wave um, so that they can finance and insure a system like that? So we call us as near shore floating solar. So we are not targeting very uh, deep sea with uh, very, very high waves because we believe we need to generate and consume energy in the same place. So we are building at near shore and it's not difficult to find unused water space where we can deploy our system in the sea. Uh, in terms of uh, uh, how bankable we are, so we do manufacturing ourselves. We did a number of tests of our system. We already know cost of our system. We know what will be benefits for the customers. So it can be easily uh, bankable. Uh, the, only question we need to show the traction. So that's why we are raising uh, seed to be able to prove our technology at scale. Because usually people look for big projects like uh, 10 megawatt, 50 megawatt, and they want to see the traction of, of technology. So once we install one megawatt, we can easily go to big projects. And and do you do you anticipate people doing, you know, what how large practically can you do in the water? Um, how, you know, how large of a system do you expect to be uh, supporting, you know, in the few, five years from now? Will they be doing 100 megawatt floating wind farm, oh, uh, solar farms, or is it always going to be sort of more distributed scale? So we have few letter of intent. Uh, two of them mentioned that they would like to build at 10 megawatt power plants by 2025. So this is our experience. But sometimes they approach with the bigger projects. Awesome. Last kind of detail question is, um, how does the cost compare to a ground mount uh, system? Like what's the premium or is there a premium to do, uh, to do an ocean uh, or a, a water mounted system? So our specifically technology will be around 30, 50% more expensive than land base, but don't forget, so first we uh, generate energy more efficiently due to cooling effect from water. So 15% we will gain of the cooling effect. And the second, we don't occupy land space. So people can use this land space for something else, for agricultural uh, usage or storage or uh, retail. So right. two other benefits can compensate a little bit more expensive technology. Awesome. All right, I'll, I'll pause, let Matt, let Matt go. So we have things f swimming in the ocean. 
do you have some type of way to, to keep wildlife out of going where you are? I'm envisioning like a kid in a pool trying to come up under a tube, but with so, animals. Actually, animals will like our system because uh, they uh, fish, for example, they understand in this area specifically, no one will catch them. And they can gather around uh, these uh, areas in the sea because they're not afraid of fishermen. And also they can build a kind of houses uh, near um, anchor blocks, for example. So they can, they can grow, uh, like they can hide there, they can have um, some activities there. So they will not be scared to be around this uh, system. I was thinking more like the seal that was looking for a great place to sun bath. Yeah, like to- Like jumping up on top of the system. Yeah, I mean, we we do it on like near shore locations in industrial areas. So usually uh, whales or dolphins will not come uh, in these uh, structures. But we had experience. Uh, so seagulls, it was big storm in Austenda port, uh, wind speed 115 kilometer an hour. It was so st strong wind and bird actually sit on our uh, structure and wait when wind uh, come down. So it was kind of... Uh, Shelter Sorry, I didn't say I didn't say seagull. I said seals. Like, are 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 they're quite heavy? I'm not sure how the the system would would handle big seals hopping on these guys. Yeah, so seal will not come in industrial areas near shore locations. So they live in the deep sea. I okay. Um, I, I've been I've been to a lot of ports and we see a lot of seals around. So okay. I don't know. I don't know necessarily, but that was just one potential concern that I potential concern that I had how to um how do the changing energy systems and prices affect your future outlook on the business what does it mean for you are you seeing a lot more demand yeah for sure with the current uh, energy crisis um, people want to use more renewables we have to rid off of Russian gas so all of this I see uh, more requests for such system. And obviously we need to have energy mix of renewables from different sources. So wind, land, solar, uh, floating solar. So uh, and the people more and more looking for floating solar is at energy mix. And is there a limitation on where you can deploy for, in terms of weather, temperatures, et cetera? Yes, so we targeting areas with a wave up to two meters and the wind speed uh, up to 160 kilometers an hour. And then I might have missed this, but um, either way, what's the what's the payback period compared to traditional land-based solar, be that rooftop or be that at commercial scale? So difficult to say, uh, capex of our system a little bit more expensive. So I would assume that return on investment will be a little bit longer, uh, but we need to calculate it from case to case. Uh, in our system, return on investment, for example, in Cyprus, where a lot of sun uh, can be around five years. So it's also like a medium scale power plant. Understood. Craig, do you have more questions for HeloRec? Uh, just the last one was, uh, do you get any pushback from the module companies on warranty being in the water, particularly, I would think, salt water? Yes, they should pass a salt mist test. 
Uh, we also uh, junction box should be IP68. This uh, uh, also better to use glass glass uh, panels, but otherwise uh, ah, also the, the cables, DC cables, we need to make sure that they uh, okay for salty environment. Got it. So there, there are products that are that are fine with that, um, or that are warranted for that scenario. Then, exactly. Awesome. Awesome. I'm, I'm, I'm all questioned out. Awesome. That makes that makes two of us then, and we've made it to our almost halfway point. We've actually got seven startups today, so uh, we should pass the pass the ball over quickly then to. How about Ben with waste recovery? We've done a lot with energy. Let's let's go to over to dead fish. Sound good? Sounds great to me. Let me get my uh, get my deck up here. Okay. Um, are you seeing the the full full slide? We see your screen. Not the full slide. We're seeing presenter mode. Okay. Let's try this again. How's that? Looking Perfect. good. Your five nice. minutes starts now. Take it away. All right. I'm Ben Wiper, founder of 3F. After 10 years working in finance in salmon and cod, I figured out how to make fish waste worth more than the seafood. Our waste-to-value biotech solutions help fish processors make more money from the fish heads, skins, and bones they already have. Processors waste 60% of the cod. New and rising disposal costs are killing their already slim margins, and only the biggest can afford to consolidate quotas. They don't have enough profits or skilled workers to transition to zero waste on their own. 3F is Processor's one-stop shop to the circular bioeconomy. We use our intellectual property and high-skill, low-cost workforce to integrate directly into processing plants. Processors sell us local fish waste and earn a rent on otherwise unused production capacity. 3F makes compost, pet treats, and collagen and sells it to our customers. Our IP portfolio lets 3F make a lot of money from the fish backbones, heads, and skins. Our compost is optimized for leafy greens and root vegetables in northern climates. Our pet treat automation and supply beats everyone on price. And our three fish collagens, optimized for pet supplements, hot coffee, and cold smoothies and alcohols, are the key to waste-to-value wealth creation today. 3F makes money on license fees and commissions, on the right to make and the right to sell its products. We operate at a margin in the plants as a co-packer and take a small equity stake in plants we acquire with our strategic customers or swap equity and integrate with strategic suppliers. Similarly, we sell at a commission on the product sold and partner with strategic customers for growth. So what is collagen? It's the most valuable use for fish waste and the most essential protein for the strength and elasticity of our skin, bones, and joints. Pig and cow collagen are the most common but aren't safe for medical uses. Our pure, clean cod collagen has been identified as a key ingredient to enable 3D printing of heart valves, skin grafts, and medical implants. 
Our model gives us a flexibility to scale to 250 million global annual sales in the next 24 months. Phase one focuses on Atlantic Canada and Eastern US fisheries, adding haddock and redfish processors, and tapping into Iceland's 27 times larger cod quota. Phase two, we strategically partner with processors in Scandinavia and establish our European sales beachhead. And in phase three, we establish our supply, sales, and R&D for the Asia-Pacific market via strategic licensing in South Korea. 3F wins the fish waste to collagen battle by making processors the most money for the least work. Besides our natural geography and industry insider advantages, our best available technologies for fish waste means we can pay the most for it. Our low-cost collagen from fish heads undercuts competitors' prices and solves the processor's biggest problem by volume. Maximizing profits from the heads ensures we have the fish skins we require to make the pharma collagen at scale. Our team of fisheries insiders and bioprocessing and clean tech experts bring more than 200 years of combined experience to the table. We need to build our team to accelerate growth. Specifically, we're looking to add capital raising, intellectual property, biomedical, and pharma expertise, including potential co-founders, to allow me to focus on growing the supply and manufacturing base of the company. We've graduated the top accelerators, including Foresight, EarthTech, and Ocean Supercluster, raising a million in non-dilutive grants and loans, and One sales of skins, compost, and pet treats of almost half a million in the past two years. We've demonstrated that our model works and we need money and expertise to scale. We're looking to raise two and a half million for a 10% equity stake by end of year so we can execute our IP strategy and buy the equipment that we need to fill our collagen purchase orders for all three grades. Thank you for listening. And of course, folks, if any of you are seeing this, none of this is solicitation, financial advice, or any of that, yada, yada, yada. We are putting this out there for investors that are interested to get in touch that are accredited run funds, et cetera, or are part of Forward VC's accredited investor syndicate. Ben, thanks for presenting. Awesome, awesome pitch. Let me pull uh, Craig back in. One of the questions that I had initially based off of our last conversation is, where are you at with the structuring of the entities? Because you do have a lot of different directions that you are going, both in terms of either on the producer side or the B2B side, as well as the facility yeah. side, how do you how do you see that going forward, and where where's what's the direction? Yes, thank thank you, Matt. And, and the probing of of this has been very uh, worthwhile pursuit over the last uh, month or so. Um, it, where I see it going is centralizing the intellectual property within an entity or perhaps a division. Um, depending on where the investor interest is, if it's in the whole model or if it's within a certain component, whether it's the IP, the manufacturing side or the sales side. And so that's where we see either in a divisional structure or within separate entities, an IP co, a manufacturing co, and a sales co, each one having the right to do those various activities. Um, the plan that I would like to, the reason for that is I like fish processing. I like making products and that's where I want to spend my time. Um, at the end of the day, if you don't have the materials and a place to make it, the IP can't really be put into use in the most profitable way and for the impacts that I'm, I'm trying to accomplish. So I see us being able to sell off larger 
pieces, hopefully, or, or license uh, regionally the IP to raise capital to build up our manufacturing uh, and equipment portfolio. I want to I want to go back and double click on something. You said I like fish processing, which I don't think is a common sentence people say. What exactly yeah. got you to be fascinated about this, and why cod? Um, I, I like fish processing because it's uh, it's rural and isolated, um, and so there's a lot of operational independence. It's kind of like the Wild West. Uh, gets me waking up in the morning and you run into a lot of interesting uh, people and characters. Um, I've also spent a lot of time in consulting up to this point in my first 20 years, basically, of my entrepreneurial career. And uh, it left me unfulfilled. I want to make something, you know, something I can see. Um, and cod, uh, cod is the synonymous fish of Newfoundland and Labrador. Um, we in 1992 went into moratorium on cod we were hauling more than 800,000 metric tons a year out of the ocean and iceland was doing similar hauling out half a million or so and stock collapsed and newfoundland basically the rural outports just died and like just communities collapsed overnight and iceland turned to biotech applied to byproduct and, and I saw an opportunity to learn from that lesson 30 years later and try to bring it over to Newfoundland, which has a very unique situation, which is why our model is different because it only has 1% of global cod, whereas Iceland has 27% of global cod, which is why they can have a whole 50 company ecosystem. Whereas in Newfoundland, you only got enough materials really for one company to feasibly utilize it all. And you guys are planning to really utilize it all. So collagen from from cod heads, your technology and your IP is purely on the cod head side of things, or can you work with other species of fish as well? That that's a great question, and it's really key to our our su supply security and our scalability. So we can make our collagen, our three recipes. So. There's a pet supplement collagen, which is ease to market, right? There's not a lot of export restrictions. You don't have to get into health bodies to get it into market and so on. We can make that from the heads of the fish. Nobody else, no other collagen to make on earth today can make a collagen that's clean enough from the heads to actually sell it on the market. Um, so that's kind of one thing we can do. The great thing about that is there's five times the volume by weight of heads, even though the yield is about 50%. So we actually tap into a two and a half times increase in global feedstock for collagen by using the heads when you multiply the volume by the yields relative to skins. Skins are only about 7% of the fish, whereas the heads are more like 37% of the weight. So by controlling the most value of the heads, we can get the skins. Now you have to use the skins to make the high grade collagen because the molecular size is smaller, it's a pure, cleaner starting point. And so the second recipe, or because the, the, the pet grade and our coffee tea hot one, it's the same product, just one's at human grade. It has a longer time to market because of health and regulations on food. But the high grade, we have to use the skins, but we get that because we're using half the fish weight in the heads that nobody else is using at high value right now, other than fish sticks, essentially. 
we get the skins, which are only 10% of the weight by volume to make a collagen that right now retails at $1,000 a gram or a million dollars a kilo at wholesale or at, um, in lab supply books. So you have to control the heads to get the skins and no other collagen maker on earth right now is even bothering with the processor's biggest problem. And that's where my insider information on knowing the fish industry lets us solve that big problem, but then we're able to get the supply and outcompete on, on the material we need. So the, the so the theory is we'll buy your heads and because we buy your heads, you, you're going to give us the skins too? Exactly. Because we can just turn around and say, you know, Mr. Fosh, Mr. Processor, who's maybe doing 10 million pounds a year, you know, six, 60 million of that is waste. And of that 60 million, 30, 37 million of it is the heads. You say, okay, boys, you can go send that to the landfill at 80 bucks a ton again, or you can give us the skins for a fair price. Okay. I have one other, other question. You said um, no one else is using the fish heads, and then you reference fish sticks. And that made me yes. wonder what exactly that was about. Are they grinding fish heads and putting them into fish sticks? Yes. Sorry. I meant nobody has collagen from fish heads specifically. Current uses is grinding it up, yeah, either for animal feed, if it's low grade or it's deteriorated, uh, not been stored properly, or you mince it up for fish sticks. Our move is just provide them the same net margin end of day, and then they don't have to invest in the labor, the CapEx equipment to basically cost recover. Understood. Well, I, I have never, uh, it's been years since I've eaten fish sticks, and I, and I don't plan to start anytime soon. <laughs> yeah. So thank you for that. Yeah, collagen is much better better use for the head uh, head needs. Craig, you want to you want to you got questions? Yeah, I, you asked everything I was thinking of, except just uh, if you could just a little bit more about the nature of your IP. Is it a like chemical process, a mechanical process? Sort of what what allows you to create this collagen in a way that others have not figured out? It's sort of you know, how should I think about the nature of the the IP. Great. Thank you for the opportunity to answer this question because I couldn't get into it in, in the deck with, with sufficient detail. So it, it, there's four main pieces of the process. So at pre-treatment. So the pre-treatment, what we've, uh, first thing we've done is we've eliminated what's called acid hydrolysis it, to accelerate the breakdown of the skins to release the collagen. Most commercial processes use acid, produces a toxic wastewater, which you then have to clean up. We've eliminated that using cold adaptive enzymes instead of acids. We've accelerated the process by integrating a circular and cir water recirculation process. Not only does that accelerate the, the uh, extraction process to make it competitive with acid hydrolysis, it also reduces water usage compared to regular commercial production by about 80%. We also save energy by only using one bioreactor instead of two bioreactors because most commercial scale, they need one pre-treatment and then they actually need another one to do washing because there's so much residue from the acid that they have to clean that acid off in a separate reactor. So we save energy and CapEx on a second reactor. The last major piece is tied to the freeze drying. Uh, most collagen today is spray dried. Spray dried uh, because collagen molecules are lighter than air, they add a molecule or something onto it, either silica or, or other materials that aren't desirable by the market to make it fall through the chamber and dry. 
to compensate for the cost efficiency of spray drying relative to freeze drying, we've developed a novel process that raises the wet collagen solution. So after you extract it using some ultrafiltration and nanofiltration equipment, we do what's called a post-hydrolysis step. We remove actually a lot of the water and it goes from a 3% concentration to a 51% collagen concentration. We then don't need to add any residues because it doesn't have to fall through any chambers. We put it into the freeze dryers, no residues, and yield is higher because you don't lose it sticking to the walls and stuff like that. And so we actually become cost competitive for high grade, low, low, low molecular weight peptides relative to spray drying. So we increase cost competitive for a higher um, yielding and quality drying technique. So that's kind of the start to finish improvements. We're looking at an industrial design process patent because it's the way we've combined and altered equipment and then keeping the actual formulations, temperatures, timings as a, as a trade secret. Thank you. Thanks so much for the, the, the questions. And any, any updates on the round? Uh, <laughs> Uh, well, I'm, I'm happy to say it's not, not a big one, but uh, I did get 75000 from friends and family to you know, secure our, our IP and start the patent filing process. So that's happened in the last uh, two weeks. Congrats. Congrats. If anyone else wants to get in touch, it's three, three F waste systems. And of course, as with pretty much all founders, if you have founder's first name and the domain name, you can find them. If not, they've got a contact form on there. Thanks for pitching, Ben. Um, it, I mean, it's interesting. Fistics fact is a fun fact for sure. And um, speak, speaking of what goes into what goes into products, how about we go over to uh, to Carbon Calories and Alex, and we talk through how we can make uh, a little bit more transparency into the products we buy, the carbon footprints, and maybe uh, maybe change the consumer actions and incentives a little bit. We eat less because of the calorie counter. Now, um, maybe we can buy a little bit less or waste less too. Alex, you are up with calorie, uh, sorry, with carbon calories. Great, thank you. Um, let me know when you can see. We got it, you are good to go. Great, um, so hi, I'm Alexander. I'm the founder of Carbon Calories. We're making carbon counting easy for businesses. Um, oops, sorry. So I think everyone in this room working on these, these very fascinating companies and, and investing know that consumers generally in surveys all want to um, buy sustainable products and many believe companies can do more. Um, there are other indicators like the number of large cap companies reporting to CDP, I think increased twofold in the past three years. It's now 13,000. 25 other carbon accounting SaaS platforms have been founded since 2017. Uh, most of them in enterprise level tools and regulation is being written and passed uh, and implemented in the US and the EU now. Um, another way to think about this opportunity is that sustainable businesses can generally charge 30% premiums um, and their market is growing at 7.3% CAGR versus 2.9 for conventional products. And so that translates into a 55% uh, opportunity cost for brands that can't or don't uh, know how to decarbonize and that can't convey it effectively to customers. So, um, and the reason why the problem exists for businesses is that most tools, including many of these SaaS tools that have been launched, 
they are too complex for many businesses to implement internally without a sustainability uh, expert or director. Um, and thus they require consultants to use. Uh, they require a lot of handholding and they're not really designed to do accounting, they're designed to do modeling. Um, so that's sort of the, the challenge of doing accounting, but there's also a reporting challenge, which is that there is no uniform framework for product level disclosures in the world right now that's, that's widely used. Um, and that really makes it difficult for consumers to receive information from companies that are decarbonizing and to differentiate. Um, and so our solution on the accounting side is to build a SaaS that's really easy for small businesses to use. So a simple UX UI. Um, carbon accounting is not a data problem. It's not a technology problem. It's not a, a, a formula problem. It really is a workflow issue for people to do the accounting work necessary to generate the results. And so we're all about building a simple solution for businesses to use. Um, it's sort of like, this is a, a, a screenshot of, of some of the- Hey, uh, Alex, Alex, I'm still on your cover slide. I don't know if it's just me. Oh. Um, I'm yeah. moving. If it has nobody seen the slides moving? No. Um, I, I swore I thought, it, thought I saw it moving, but now I see the cover slide as well again. Yeah, it looks like maybe you're, if you're using kind of a dual screen thing, we're, we're seeing just the- um, um yeah that's totally that's totally yeah my fault for not catching that um yeah you're on that screen there you go uh okay can you see it move now yes there we go great so 78 percent of consumers want to change well other indicators um it's a 55 percent uh, opportunity to earn more income for brands that can differentiate in the market this decade, just through the next seven years. And like I said, the problem is that the existing tools are too complex for businesses to actually adopt. And before regulation makes carbon accounting mandatory, there is no uniform framework for brands to disclose results to customers, which hurts their potential ROI return. Um, so our solution is to build a super easy front-end UX UI for businesses to be able to do this without needing to hire consultants that probably charge 50 to 150 an hour. Um, this is a sort of sneak peek at the UX UI of adding a product. Uh, I call our solution off the shelf SaaS because just about every single SaaS platform, competing SaaS platform you can see, uh, they don't have a first 15 or 30 days free. They have contact us for demo. That's because they are not off the shelf solutions. Um, so we're building the QuickBooks of carbon accounting for businesses, for businesses to be able to use immediately. Um, we have a patent pending uh, utility patent for a uh, non-provisional utility patent for our carbon framework, our carbon statement, our reporting framework. Um, it looks like a nutrition label for a reason um, because that methodology works and that structure is somewhat familiar to most consumers. So um, we want to see this on every single product to catalyze consumer-driven demand loop of demanding more low carbon products. And so that companies that already decarbonize it can actually receive the uh, bump in ROI that then triggers more companies to go towards decarbonizing. Um, and so that plays into our go-to-market strategy. You know, we're gonna direct market to sustainable brands selling sustainable products now which accounts for about 15 to 10 to 15% of the CPG market, according to NYU Stern. Um, we're gonna use channel partners. And time, time is up, sorry. Oh yeah. 
Well, uh, we have traction and it's me and my founder. He's got 25 years experience at Uplight. So I'll stop sharing, but I'd love to answer questions. The founders is exactly where I'd want to go with the first question. What makes you two of the people to do this and why? Uh, well, so I've been uh, passionate about this since ninth grade. And I uh, have been doing carbon accounting for the past 10 years. Next to my professional experience in real estate finance, I was acquisition development, lease valuations. I managed a family office impact fund, um, started the low carbon fund for them to invest in public securities that were building or at least investing more interesting that were essentially decarbonizing. That's very difficult to prove, obviously, or to, to actually quantify. Um, and so all of that experience means that I know financial accounting very well and, and what businesses need to do or that workflow. I lived in QuickBooks for five years. I worked in a Bloomberg terminal for five. I used Morningstar. I used Interactive Brokers. So I sort of like know how to match software capabilities with needs. And then my co-founder, Ray, he's got 25 years experience architecting SaaS and as senior principal engineer at uh, five, oh, sorry, three startups, employees 725 in the first two. And he worked for nine years at Uplight, which is uh, they collect data from, I think, where they work for 80 utility companies to basically deliver data to those utility companies' customers about their, including their carbon emissions. And so he has, he can do anything literally, except design. So we, I have a, I have a design partner who's, uh, or a design uh, consultant who does the design. And so between the two of us, um, we, I have the unique ability to do both financial accounting and carbon accounting, which brings me insights to the solution and, and insight into the problem. And then Ray, likewise, he's uh, incredibly versatile and he retrofitted his RV with solar panels. So he also knows the difference between a kilowatt and a kilowatt hour, which is actually quite rare when it comes to coders. And so he really brings a lot of value. How do you, how do you idiot proof this? So it's gotta be super simple for it to take off. Yeah. So, um, it's, uh, we've worked with 10 paying clients. Um, I've done, you know, a hundred product carbon footprints with these clients. And so we have a lot of insight into what they know and don't know what, which asks are difficult, which are easy, like, you know, emailing vendors, third-party manufacturers or warehouse managers. Um, so really we have done, I've done about a year's worth of case study work for clients paying paid work, um, writing down guides, notes for data requests, templates for data requests. And so I have a very good idea of like, what they need in order to actually start collecting this data. So um, it's about giving people guides and then it's about making the UX UI sort of um, as inflexible as possible, as static as possible without making it sort of, um, without making it in so, uh, so static that it can't actually uh, be used for uh, different tech, new technologies. Like there's, there's sort of like a push and pull there. So, but we want to make the UX UI as sort of uh, static and one directional, like add the materials, add the location of your uh, suppliers, uh, add the build materials for your packaging, add the uh, waste handling methods. Those are drop downs, and add the locations of your final sale. Like many of these data inputs are fairly straightforward. And then we handle the calculations and the emission factors back end. So 
it's literally about walking people through that. And then we're trying to do that as much as possible online without needing people to actually do it, but giving them guides and having the, uh, the UX UI be sort of straightforward for them to collect this information. And Craig, you want, you got some questions. I'll let you go. Yeah. Uh, you kind of got cut off in the presentation when you were talking about traction. Can you give us a little bit more of the traction? Is the software product live or is the, the traction sort of more, I think you were sort of talking about sort of some carbon footprinting and, and, uh, you know, so, so it is the product live and, and no, you know, it's going live and, next month, the yeah. sort of MVP 1.0, um, it took me about six months to build the proprietary model that we're currently using that is like input driven in the sense that that I don't have to rebuild the calculation model depending on what companies like the different um, products that companies manufacture or produce or the different ways that they distribute or the different packaging levels like it is literally drop down ready to handle any sort of product specs. And so that is the case, that's the model for what we're building online. Um, and so, and that model has been third-party verified by uh, independent consultants to be standard compliant, which is super important. Um, many companies are not automating standard compliance for businesses results, which means that um, reliability by customers is impacted, but, um, but we're currently um, putting it online. And, and the, um, you know, this idea, which I find really interesting of this sort of labeling, uh, product labeling, uh, the analogy to, you know, um, nutritional labeling, um, it seems like that's an important part of the sort of flywheel you described, right? Which is yep. like getting, you know, getting the visibility in front of consumers so that they, they factor that into their choice. Um, is, is, can that work coming from a, in a single company, right? Or to, for that to really happen, do, does there not need to be just sort of some industry standard for how to not only display it, but how to calculate it? And is that your goal um, is essentially to, you know, open source that and create an industry, industry standard? Or do you think you can own that as a, as a software company? I think that the reporting framework would probably will like make open source or put it in a nonprofit to manage once we have enough businesses using it. Um, but the solutions to perform carbon accounting, they can't be, that's always has to be private, private company driven. Like financial accounting, you have gap accounting rules and you have specific record, reporting requirements, but, um, but the accounting work is done by, you know, EY, KPMG, et cetera. So it's like, um, and that's how I see it. Got it. it would be beneficial for us if everybody used our framework, because it also ensures that products are cross comparable, which 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 brands need to make a qualified marketing claim. So, yeah, makes sense. Um, and you know, I'll, I'll I don't know exactly how how to frame this in a question, but you know, from my seat, um, getting you know sort of um, inbound investment opportunities it seems like this is a very, very noisy space. Um, there are a lot of companies doing a lot of different things, offering a lot of solutions, you know, ranging from consulting services to, you know, people claiming, you know, sort of full automated software solutions. Um, 
I, I know that it's a big market. It's not going to support, you know, the, the thousands of companies that I, that I, I think are working on this sort of, how do you, how do you ultimately, is it a product uh, differentiation that is ultimately going to result in the win here? Is it sales and marketing? Like, is it capital? What, what, what sort of enables someone to kind of stand out above the crowd in a, a busy market that, you know, that a lot of people are interested in? I think giving a company the ability to communicate a result to a customer effectively. And that's why I focus on product level, because I really think customers need to be able to respond to a company's disclosure or a company's efforts, either buying more products or paying more for them if a company's decarbonizing or not, if in another case that they're not. So I think that um, that differentiates us versus most EL enterprise level tools. Um, that's one differentiator. So you take like 50% of the market out of it, uh, of comps out. We're never going to do sell offsets. That's a conflict of interest. So offsets out of the table, we're not doing that. And then within that group of product level tools, um, we are going to get our software is always going to be third-party verified by an independent organization. We're actually going to hire the Earth Institute at Columbia University uh, to provide companies that level of qu that quality. I don't see that among competitors right now. And so, and then I also don't see the reporting framework. And so that's really important to differentiate us, I think. Um, and, and that's sort of why I've patented it. And so that combination of, of giving businesses a tool that in the short term before regulation really makes it possible for them to advertise and market how they're different it makes that makes the tool much more valuable. And then when regulators do come and actually pass regulation, the first thing they're going to ask is like, well, who's standard compliant? Because we can't, we can't tell people like businesses need to use standard compliant tools. And so when regulation comes in, I see that as a catalyst for us. And so I'm confident that those factors, technical factors, and then the branding that would be associated uh, will differentiate us versus competitors and, and result in much faster adoption for our solution versus competitors. And so that plays into our data network play, which is once we have a lot of product level assessments in our database, our tool only becomes more valuable for brands to be able to compare their products anonymously So and, and to differentiate. So it's, does that answer your question? No, it does, actually. Yeah, it was a great answer. Thank you. And it was a great presentation, but I want to make sure everybody's got time to present. So we got we to gotta kick things back over into the energy and uh, kicking them off kind of space with transportation, mobility, and decarbonizing the way we, decarbonizing the way we move. We've got an incredible pitch for you guys planned now, and that is Nathan King with It's Electric. And he's going to do the boogie woogie and tell you guys what the future of transportation looks like in cities. You ready to take things away, Nathan? Definitely. Thanks so much, Matt. Uh, really excited to be uh, presenting uh, along with this cohort of very, very cool companies. Uh, and uh, it's great for me to have an opportunity to share more about our vision here at It's Electric for uh, decarbonizing transportation in cities. Uh, and in particular, uh, we estimate there's about 40 million drivers in the U.S. that park their cars on city streets. And without affordable and convenient EV charging, 
switching from a gas to an electric car is out of the question for these drivers. Um, and this is happening even as we see increased demand for electric vehicles. And, you know, as, uh, you know, following the CARB decision to ban the sale of new uh, internal combustion engines, you know, solving this problem for city drivers is becoming more critical. So our solution is to deploy a network of curbside level two EV chargers in cities across the U.S. Um, this is obviously going to be a tremendous investment in our infrastructure. Uh, and so what we've done is to make this process as simple and uh, frictionless as possible. And it's how we power the chargers. Uh, what we do is we find uh, existing spare capacity in the adjacent private property, and we bring that power out to a publicly accessible charger. So this is a behind the meter approach. Uh, what this, uh, the advantage of it, this is, is that we don't have to go out into the street and connect directly to the utility main. So we save time and money uh, by avoiding the costly and uh, time-consuming process of connecting directly to the utility. Uh, in return for that uh, spare capacity from the adjacent private property, uh, we share revenue from that charger post. Uh, this is exciting for us because what we do is we build advocacy uh, with our communities. We Because we're making literal partners with people who live in the community around the deployment of EV charging infrastructure. Uh, we install these chargers at no cost to the property owner. Uh, we're able to actually make the economics work within a two year payback, uh, even without any public uh, incentives or financing, which we'll certainly be pursuing. Um, once that charger goes live, uh, the host properties will receive enough revenue based on a fairly low utilization model that they could really offset a good portion of their energy budget for the year. Uh, in addition to sort of one and two family homes, you know, really any property that has curbside and that spare capacity uh, can host in its electric charger. So we're talking about schools, uh, religious buildings, uh, university campuses, multi-unit dwellings. Uh, really, this is a problem uh, that uh, that lots of different property profiles can help contribute to solving. Because we can be flexible about where we locate our chargers, we're not limited uh, by grid infrastructure projects. We can deploy in communities that have that spare capacity. It lets us really align our deployments with uh, priorities that public officials have for EV charging. Uh, that lets us uh, meet um, uh, uh, financing requirements uh, in the infrastructure bill uh, for Justice 40 communities. Uh, and really, again, sort of lets us be in communities right now that are very underserved by EV charging, even as these communities do see increasing demand. To accelerate adoption, we actually have a uh, unique hardware configuration. It's uh, based on um, a charging post model that we see being deployed in the EU. Uh, which features a detachable cord. Uh, so this is a cord that the driver keeps with them, uh, and then they plug one end to the end into the post, and the other end goes into the car. The cord locks on both ends, so it can't be removed, and the charging starts. When the charging is done, the driver takes that cord with them in the car, and all you have left on the street is this nice clean profile. Um, this, we decided to develop this hardware profile because we don't see these being uh, available right now. We're, we, as far as we know, we're the only company in North America that has a, a, a functional EV charger with this detachable cord. 
And we know that it's something our, uh, our municipal partners are specifically looking for. Uh, and for us, this is also how we see deploying in sort of dense neighborhoods, uh, dense residential neighborhoods where uh, property owners aren't going to want to see something that looks like a, a gas tank, uh, sorry, a gas pump in front of their uh, house. We see opportunities to expand our offerings beyond just simple EV charging. Uh, it will be easy for us to include other technology that's in the civic interest. Our next generation of technology that we're working on now will feature a uh, sidewalk side uh, micro mobility charger port. We know that this is another priority that our municipal partners have. And then also this charger post uh, can become a platform for other kinds of civic technology. Uh, this is, allows us to sort of span our access. And it also allows us to uh, find revenue streams that go beyond simple EV charging. Uh, that will certainly be the core of our business model, you know, fees that we charge drivers. 30 seconds. Uh, but, yeah, but we see opportunities to uh, monetize the, uh, the use of this. In a way, we're sort of hacking the need for EV charging, which is immediate, to offer other things as a platform for other types of technologies. Uh, we are in the midst of our pre-seed raise. Uh, we're raising $1 million as part of this raise. Uh, we've, uh, we're, we're about 80% uh, between money wired in and commitments. So we are still looking for a few more investors to come in. And time is up. Maybe some oh, wow. of those investors are here now. Hi, everyone. Mm -hmm. Hi, Thanks everyone. Thanks so much. And thank you for pitching. Thanks for sharing. It's it's very interesting what you guys are. You went through, you went through Generator, right? I forgot to add that. Yes. Yes, we were uh, part of the first uh, generator sustainability cohort. And according to Ryan, one of the one of the best he's ever seen. So that's why uh, that's why we had to get you on the program. So hustling team. Um, speaking of the hustling team, I'd love to hear a little bit more about you, about Tia, and why why this is your big issue and why you guys are the people to do this because it is a super competitive space. Yeah, Tia and I, I would say we're not your typical uh, startup founders. Um, I'm actually uh, an architect. Uh, I've had a, a couple of decades of experience building uh, things in New York City. Uh, so a lot of familiarity with the process around uh, basically, you know, what I would say, digging holes and putting stuff in them. Uh, you know, getting through that sort of permitting structure, working with contractors, like these are all things that I, I sort of learned the hard way over the past couple of decades. Similarly, uh, Tia is... Uh, has uh, been working in what we call uh, public-facing technology. Uh, so this is, uh, let's say, the, the technology you might see uh, out in the public that anyone can use. Uh, her best example of this, she developed all of the technology that you see in the 9-11 Memorial Museum and uh, the above-grade um, the, the above grade memorial and the below-grade museum. Uh, so, you know, Tia was sort of like working on touch screens before, you know, uh, iPads have been invented. Uh, so those kind of combination of like, you know, building stuff and thinking about how the public interfaces with technology is sort of where we're coming from. I'd say both of us are about mid-career and thinking about how we wanted to spend the next uh, half of our career. And, and both of us agreed that, you know, focusing on climate was, was the most urgent thing that we wanted to do. So when we came up with the idea for It's Electric, we decided to go all in. So this might sound like a dumb question, but my... My vacuum cleaner has a plug. Why does my electric car not just have a plug? Oh, that, that's not a dumb question. It's actually probably a good question. I, 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 it would be very interesting if, if cars could come with like a retractable cord that you could just sort of plug into a standard outlet. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that you're, you're going to have to ask the OEMs about that. Um, I think well, one, one reason is uh, 
I think there needs to be flexibility on how uh, the cars can charge. Um, so I think you know one of the reasons is you know taking all of that technology out and making it the chargers uh, problem, so to speak, is is probably why it's happened that way. But um, you know I, I you're not the first person to sort of wonder like why why the car just can't be plugged in like a vacuum cleaner. And then the other thing that I see is just a potential challenge or a potential question. So you're, you're building a sustainability company and Apple realized they could pretend to be sustainable by taking out the headphones and taking out the headphone jack and making you buy adapters and adapters and adapters. So everyone needed all of these adapters. Are, are we going to have a, a million charging stations and a billion charging cables? Yeah, also a very good question. And, and, what I will tell you now is what we are doing is importing a standard uh, plug technology. So uh, this, as I, as I mentioned, this is, this detachable cord is called a type one to type two uh, connection. This is really uh, already being deployed at scale in the EU and certain parts of Asia. You know, if you buy an EV in the EU right now, you get one of those cables. Uh, we think that that process will replicate itself here in, in the US. Uh, so we're not trying to invent a new charging standard. We're using things that are already on the market. They just haven't come over to North America yet. So I'd say no. You know, it's really just going to be about the Tesla connection and the J1772, at least in the near medium future. And then last question before I hand things over to Craig. How do you roll out a business like this that has local network effects, but doesn't have large global network effects? That, that, that is a good question. And, you know, I think the, the network effects um, will begin at the local level, but then can become uh, national and then, and then global. You know, I, I think, again, you know, what we see happening in the EU is this, this kind of charging model is becoming very, is becoming very common. Uh, I think we're going to see that here as well. And then, you know, the other sort of parts of the world that are still catching up to this will begin to incorporate the same technology. Craig, I want to hand things over to you because you are deep on the energy side. What are you seeing? What questions do you have? Yeah, and Nathan, good to speak again. Transparency again. Nathan and I have spoke in the past. Um, uh, 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 so I think this is a, a really a unique idea, this idea of sort of tapping into um, private property owners, uh, you know, excess capacity. Does it really um, does it really save you money in terms of deploying these or make you know like so what what is the what are the fundamental differences between you know cutting a deal with the utility or the city to tap into their power on you know their side of the meter versus the customer side of the meter? Sure, it, it's orders of magnitude. Um, you know, I'll just kind of explain it in kind of you know. Uh, practical terms. If you want to connect to the utility main, first you have to go through a service interconnection agreement for every charge point that you put in, which takes a long time. You know, uh, work again. It's coming from my experience as an architect. You know, it was one thing dealing with the Department of Buildings. Uh, it was a completely different thing entirely dealing with the utility. Uh, utilities are well intentioned. You know, they, but they are uh, worried about overstretching their already uh, overtaxed resources and. Um, and they're very cautious about the perception of using ratepayer money to do things, you know, to to invest in things that that the rest of the community hasn't been on board. So there's a slow moving process when you're trying to connect new power to a utility generally. And then just in other practical terms, 
The utility mains are usually located about four to six feet deep. Uh, you have to install a step-down transformer. There's a problem that the utilities still haven't quite figured out about how you submeter that publicly accessible charger. Uh, and then the, and the footprint of those chargers themselves tend to take up a huge chunk of space on the sidewalk. What we're doing instead is we're, it's basically what is already happening at scale uh, for drivers who have driveways in, in garages. You just hire an electrician, come over, they do a little trenching and they'll put a level two charger in your garage. I know it's a little bit more complicated because we have to go across the sidewalk, but um, you know, the, for us, uh, this is not a, a big deal. It's a one day operation. Uh, the electrician can get in and out of your house and uh, repair your sidewalk within a single day. And then we can get that charger live and operating uh, and validated uh, in, in, as part of that process as well. And, and how do you deal with the sort of landlord tenant issue? Like I'm just imagining a lot of these buildings, um, you know, some may be owner occupied, in which case it seems straightforward. But if there's a renter, a lot of times the utility bill is in the renter's name. Um, you know, the landlord sort of owns the thing and the renter's not really supposed to go, you know, add circuits and stuff like that. Like, is it, is it just, you just got to work with both to get it, um, to get an agreement and how much, you know, how, how difficult do you expect that to be? In, in all cases, we have to work with the property owner, right? Like they have to sign off on the permits. Uh, so the, it's always going to be working with the property owners. Uh, and where we have tenanted buildings, you know, we can go either behind the tenant submeter if the uh, if the property owner is okay with that, or we go behind the the uh, common panel, right? So if it's a multi-tenant building, there'll be a common panel uh, that you know is is aside from the other tenanted panels. Got it. Um, that makes sense. And where are you guys at in deployments now? It's been it's been a while since we spoke, or you know, potential deployments. What what is the current status? Sure. So we. Um, we built our first prototype uh, back in May. Uh, we've, we've, we deployed it at a facility in Detroit called the Detroit Smart Parking Lab. And we've been running uh, public demonstrations there with the prototype. Keep it there. So if you're ever in Detroit and you want to check it out, let me know. Um, and while we are doing that, uh, we are working on a sort of a, a user testing pilot, which we will have deployed uh, towards the end of this year. Uh, that's going to be located probably somewhere in New York City, but we're still working out the details of that location. Uh, so what that'll be is just a more, you know, we'll, we'll be deploying more of our prototypes and actually collecting user data and feedback on it. While all of that is going on, we're working on our engineering and industrial design for what we're calling the market ready product. So pushing that prototype into something that can be manufactured at scale. Uh, there's a software component too that we're developing as well. All of that's going to be ready early to mid 2023. Uh, by the way, our pre-seed fundraise is, is being put into that. Uh, that's our primary use of resources is to develop that market-ready product and software. And once all that software and uh, market-ready product is working, the, the uh, other thing that we're doing right now is working really hard with our municipal potential municipal partners for early stage pilots next year. So by the time we go out for our next fundraise, we will be able to point to um, uh, public, publicly deployed EV chargers that are earning revenue. Excellent. Thank you very much. I think that's all I got. And I think you, I think you covered my primary questions as well between the between the before and after. And I want to make sure that our our last company, Carno Engines, has time to has time to pitch before we jump into that. 
As a reminder, this is the Startup Tank. If you haven't subscribed to the startuptank.com slash YouTube to subscribe on YouTube, we're on all your major podcasting platforms. Just check in the description wherever you're listening to or watching this. And if you are an accredited investor interested in incredible climate companies, early stage changing the world, you can learn more about us and our accredited investor syndicate at forward.vc. This is not a solicitation, but there's awesome companies like these and many more that we're interested in and looking and to invest in. We try to be the most connected and helpful network and investors in the space. And that means putting together shows like this. It means reaching out to massive, uh, massive um, investors, funds, incubators, accelerators. It means connections. It means bringing in great investors like Craig, if there's interesting companies we're looking at. And if you're a company looking for funding and you want a hustler who's not necessarily going to be the biggest on the cap table, but will be the biggest in terms of hustle, that's us, forward.vc for more details. And if you haven't downloaded our Climate VC database for any of the founders and listening, it's a great place to find your ideal investor. It's just forward.vc, so the number forward.vc slash VC database. You can find that, download our 600, 700 plus funds, et cetera. But we have one last awesome company ready to present, and that is Francis with Carnot. And they are decarbonizing transportation on a, on a big scale with big objects. You want to take things away, Francis? Thanks so much, Matt. Uh, pleasure to be here. I know everyone's had quite a lot. We're all a bit tired, so I'm going to endeavor to make this uh, next five minutes as exciting as possible. Um, so uh, to clarification, I'm Francis Lem, one of the, the co-founders of Carno, and uh, we are really developing the future of sustainable powertrains. Uh, and at the heart, our mission uh, is to solve one of the toughest challenges of net zero right now, which is decarbonizing the marine heavy-duty vehicles and prime power markets. Now, these are considered some of the hardest sectors to abate, accounting for about 13% of global CO2. And more worryingly, they don't actually have any production-ready technologies to achieve net zero. So it's a genuine gigaton scale problem. So let's take a look at some of the options for these markets. Uh, and we see the traditional lineup starting with existing engine technology, which despite great range, power density and uh, great total cost of ownership, it's the poor efficiency and emissions that mean they really are the root cause of the problem we are all trying to solve at the moment. And so next on the list, you jump to batteries, which are great for light duty, short range applications. But in these markets, the size and range requirements often make them far too heavy, costly and difficult to recharge that ultimately results in unaffordable total cost of ownership for the end user. And so fuel cells can improve vastly on these problems. But the fact remains, actually, for all hydrogen only technologies, they have the existing barriers of how expensive green hydrogen is and some of the infrastructure requirements to make it happen. And so at Carnot, we really believe that the best solution here should be a clean and efficient fuel agnostic engine. And it just so happens that's exactly what we're doing uh, by producing the world's most efficient net zero fuel agnostic powertrain, which I know is a bit of a mouthful, so uh, please bear with me. Um, and so really at the heart of it, you look at modern engines and they waste uh, tremendous amounts of energy to cooling systems. And it's actually the biggest driver of their poor efficiency and emissions. Our unique design uses advanced technical ceramics uh, that can actually operate without the need for cooling. And that brings a step change in efficiency that the industry has never seen before. 
but we did not stop there. We actually designed the entire engine architecture to be fuel agnostic, which means it can not only run on hydrogen, but also biofuels, e-fuels, and ammonia as well. But why are these features important? And well, the high efficiency means we can drastically reduce fuel costs and therefore significantly reduce total cost of ownership. And that lowers the barriers for adoption of hydrogen and other net zero fuels. The fuel agnostic design means that our engines can be easily retrofitted for a variety of net zero fuels as and when commercially viable for the end user, allowing them to retain many of their assets. And last and often overlooked is the compatibility of our technology to these existing end user markets, but also to the supply chains that we need to scale this technology. And so I suppose the next question is what the state of this technology is to date. And so in parallel to running a, a prototype in our test facility, we've already secured industry funded co-development projects in both marining and mining to develop demonstrator solutions. And we actually discovered that our ability to blend things like hydrogen with ammonia um, meant that our powertrains were cheaper than traditional diesel operations. Uh, and actually we had no NOx issues making us a truly zero emission combustion solution. Our long-term goal is to be a, a leading powertrain supplier. Uh, and that journey really begins with delivering field trials with our current partners over the next two years and for which we're currently raising a seed round of two million pounds led in partnership with Mitsubishi and NYK line. From there, we One enter co-development partnerships with the existing industry players to utilize the supply chain that's already out there for engines in order to scale as rapidly as possible. We'll be starting with low barrier markets like generators and auxiliary power units before then going into main propulsion systems for the heavy duty vehicles. The team set out to undertake this uh, particularly ambitious task, include some of the best engineers from Formula One and aerospace, some experts in strategizing, commercializing IP, and of course, some former executives from the automotive world, all backed up by a wealth of industry academic and government bodies. But of course, we're always on the lookout for new investors and development partners interested in taking on this trillion dollar gigaton problem. So thanks very much for listening and I look forward to the questions. And thanks very much for pitching, incredible pitch. I will bring back our investor panel, get Craig in here, get myself in here. Um, Craig, do you wanna kick things off with questions? Yeah, uh, I will start. So first of all, a really nice presentation and. Uh, I don't know, congratulations on, on taking on what may be like the hardest challenge in startup world, which is becoming an automotive supplier. Like I can't imagine uh, anything more difficult um, and, uh, and ambitious and a worthy, uh, worthy goal. Um, can you talk a little bit more about what's been demonstrated in the prototype, um, you know, sort of uh, what, what is, what is it, what does the prototype demonstrate and achieve, but what sort of technical hurdles are still left to, to build something that could be suitable for even the low barrier entry markets that you talked about. No, definitely. Thank, thank you for the question. And, and what we have at the moment is a, a really a, a small scale 50 kilowatt single cylinder prototype that demonstrates the core aspects of the technology. So one of the things we identified when talking to some of the end users before going into partnerships uh, was the kind of minimum requirements we had to demonstrate to, to, to really um, uh, understand the core technology. And that was uh, manufacturability and durability of these ceramic components, 
which is obviously a, a, an area that, that, that people question. Um, and of course, the ability to actually operate at a higher thermal efficiency. So what we've been running is back to back tests between our um, uh, high, high temperature material design and a conventional uh, cooled engine to demonstrate the heat balance between the two and really show that we can drastically improve um, uh, brake thermal efficiency by removing the, the cooling jacket. Um, and what we plan to do with this round is to really take that up uh, into the next phase uh, of design um, where we can actually demonstrate the retrofitting of, of, of the different fuels, uh, achieve uh, a minimum of 55% of brake thermal efficiencies, which is the kind of indicator that some of the OEMs we're in discussions with have, have, have said is the real milestone we need to hit before going from uh, you know, letters of support into a full-scale um, pilot project. And what's the origins of the IP here, this design? You, you, the company's name is Carnot. Is it, is, is it named that way because you're actually using a Carnot cycle engine or uh, because that's the sort of maximum limit of efficiency for a, for a, for a, you know, a heat engine? Yes, so it's, it's really the latter. We decided to name the company after the, the, the you know, father of, of modern thermodynamics. He predicted the, the maximum theoretical efficiency was 80% for any engine, if you take into account the second law of thermodynamics. And so we thought it was fitting that we're trying to really push the boundaries for what an engine can do um, and try and approach that, that theoretical limit. Uh, the IP really, um, and, and all three of our founders, I mean, we're, we're engineering by background. Um, uh, um, engineers who, who always had a, a different approach to solving problems and, and have worked in, in various different startups. Um, when we sort of came together, we initially bounced some ideas around how to get these materials to work. Um, and, and we actually landed on essentially IP that is around enabling technology. So it's not the use of these materials. Um, it's actually around the uh, specific designs we have um, and operating principles that enable these materials to work. So what we've done is redesigned the entire engine architecture to work for the ceramic materials, which is something nobody has done before, which essentially is, is, is making sure that they're never exposed to a loading condition that ceramics are bad at. They're very good in compression. They're very bad in tensile load. So we make sure all those ceramic components are in constant compression. Um, and so our intellectual property is all around enabling designs um, and, and our search and examination reports have found no prior art in this area. And, and you said 50 kilowatts for the prototype. What, what does that ultimately need to scale up to and, and what was the efficiency of your prototype? Uh, so, so we demonstrated um, essentially double uh, uh, thermal efficiency compared to a, a normal one. So in the region of 50, but that was more of a heat balance. Um, the next phase will be an engine which is closer to an end, end product, right? So something with the ancillary systems, et cetera, um, closer to final product. Um, uh, in terms of what that needs to scale up to, so our markets typically are in the 300 kilowatt through to uh, you know, eight megawatt range. Um, what we plan to actually produce are modules of 50, 100, and 300 kilowatt size, right? That will vary in cylinder size and then um, an end user will be able to stack these modules to meet an overall power requirement. Because what you often see in the heavy goods vehicles is that a 300 kilowatt engine serves that vehicle well, and we won't need to, to, to sort of scale the modules. But for the marine sector, what they often do um, is they do uh, uh, modularize their, their power units, because then you're able to 
um, kind of stabilize, you know, load requirements, um, switch modules on and off, depending on, on how the vessel is operating, whether it's at port or at sea. So we, 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 we plan to take this 50 to um, uh, a 300 kilowatt demonstrator in the next three years. We have an OEM partner on board who's going to scale that, that project as part of a Danish grant, uh, which I'm, I'm happy to disclose some information on uh, uh, as a follow on. Awesome. Thank you very much. I would say the biggest question that I have that would need to be answered is how capitally efficient you can grow and scale this and how you plan to do that and make it into something that can still be a venture type outcome. Uh, right. Um, so in that context, um, a lot of people, they see it as, as competing with the existing automotive and engine makers. We, we don't see them as competitors. We want to partner with them because um, ultimately, we want to keep this company streamlined, focus on the tech, continuous innovating on the product itself, and use those existing players as, as, as partners and, and their, their knowledge and existing use base on design for manufacture, design for cost. Um, and, and they will essentially do the heavy lifting for scaled production and distribution. Um, a lot of, of startups in this space try and take all that on up front. And that's actually the biggest challenge is trying to scale up production. So we want to go through the, the joint venture route with a lot of these players. And I think a good example to benchmark us you know, as, a, as, a, as a venture entity is, is to look at a company like Yasa Motors, who focused on demonstrating their value proposition with end users directly, so through pilot projects, um, demonstrating profitability at a unit cost level through you know, a small pilot line and early JVs with, with manufacturing partners. And then bringing the two to an existing player like Mercedes or Mitsubishi to show them that there's market one for the technology, that it's profitable if you scale it up from a unit cost point of view. And really, they take it on there. And, and it, you often see an acquisition um, uh, at that point from, from one of those existing players. And we really feel that that's the best route uh, in terms of exit. So what's a great outcome mean for you? A great outcome? Um, I think a great outcome is, is, is really having an impact on these markets that are in a, a nightmare scenario. As founders, we are impact focused. Um, we see these heavy duty markets in a, in, a, in a very tough spot because a lot of the innovation around uh, passenger cars is not necessarily applicable, but yet they face the same kind of stringent regulations by 2050 and they're in a really tight spot um, and, and uh, don't really have solutions to decarbonize. So I think impact first. Uh, uh, bringing a technology to market that can really help this transition um, is, is, is what, as founders, we're really targeted towards doing. And if you're acquired by a single company, would you have then larger impact or smaller impact as you would then be under one of the big players? So the, the, the joint venture route really allows us to kind of have different pots cooking, right? So, so there are automotive supply or powertrain suppliers, I should say, that focus on the marine sector. So we can have joint ventures that look specifically at main propulsion for marine with, with maybe a John Deere or a Cummins. And on the automotive side, the class eight HGVs, you've got Daimler and, and Mitsubishi, et cetera. And so I think long-term we plan to, to, to focus in on these specific joint ventures um, in, in, in certain market verticals that will allow us to kind of maximize on, 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 on what we can have as, a, as an exit potential for investors. Awesome, and an impact for the world. Then thanks for pitching. Do you have any other questions on your side, Craig? No, I don't. All good.
Well, then we move to the last segment and everyone's favorite, the the startup of the night. So now it's Craig and I on the panel. We had, a, as we said earlier, um, a hospitalized investor, a first time. So we have to keep things small here. But Craig, between you and me, we've got to decide who we think is the startup of the night. Who are you most excited about? Who would you bet your money on or want to set up a meeting with? Which one, two, maybe three companies are you most impressed about and why? Oh, man, that's that's putting me on the spot. Thanks very much for that. Uh, so th um, uh, this is my you know first time participating in this. I just got to say uh, it, um, extremely high quality. So whatever your filtering and selection process is, Matt, uh, is really, really good. Um, so uh, like I said, I've, I've met a couple of you guys before. Um, so I'll try not to be biased by sort of the, the more insight I have in, in either direction, but the more insight I have into some of the companies I've met. Um, you know, folks are all at, at different stages. So that also makes it, it tough to, to support, to compare apples to apples. If I had to talk about ones that, if I had to pick a couple, is that what you want? Like kind of a couple, two, three that- Yeah, pick two or three rise, and we'll see what rise overlaps. To the, rise to the top for me. Um, I'm going to have to say uh, uh, Heliorec, uh, Polina. Um, I, I think this has been a, the, the sort of, um, you know, floating photovoltaics has been a, a thing for a while, but that doesn't seem to have scaled. Uh, and I really, really like the, uh, the effort to sort of build up a, a more scalable solution. So I found that one really fascinating and want to, would want to learn more than that and they've also you know they I'm, I'm biased towards uh, you know like it or not biased towards traction and you know she's got projects in the in the water which is awesome um i'd say the 3f waste recovery uh which is totally not my area i know nothing about fish uh uh the fish industry except other than i like to eat fish um, but the story was compelling. The uh, Ben seems to, you know, really know the industry. His insights come from, you know, kind of living it and being in it. And um, it just seemed like uh, a really straightforward idea backed by some, you know, proprietary technology and a team that that knows the market. So I thought that was another one. And if I if I had to pick a third. Um, it's a toss up. I'll pick two up Windscape and it's electric both, you know, kind of both jump out to me as just, you know, um, important and somewhat unique solutions to what are obviously big, gigantic markets um, mm -hmm. and growing markets. So, uh, yeah, that's that's kind of where I, I would go. And, and then you're probably going to ask me to pick one. Right now, you don't need to pick one. I'll give you mine and we'll see the we'll see the overlap. I would say. For me, the one that the one the ones that we're most excited about. So, Windscape just having that several percentage increase on all wind farms around the world. It's it's not sexy, but not sexy is a great way to build a big venture business. So, very excited about what they are doing and the ability to reduce the costs while increasing the the earnings for wind farms was very excited about its electric and what they're doing because we do need a faster, easier way to get deployment going on the charging networks. And I'm not sure venture investment wise, but in terms of impact and importance wise, I see what Francis and Carnot are doing to be, to be way up there, decarbonizing two of the, 
the largest industry. So marine and uh, transportation on the on the heavy side of things. And I think their their thesis that we aren't going to get to pure electric on those industries anytime soon. And we need uh, we need better solutions. Their multi fuel system as well makes it possible so that you can have the. I mean, you can change you can change your cargo ship. You can change your truck between diesel, ethanol, et cetera, as prices fluctuate. But I would say those are kind of my my top three. And then um, consensus wise, it looks like Windscape and its electric was one ahead for you. Oh God, you're gonna make me pick one of those two. Um, um, we can have a tie. We've done it before. I'm I'm gonna have to go Windscape uh, just for the sole reason that um, I feel like. Uh, it's, it's, it, you know, it's, it's a, both are humongous markets and growing markets. Um, I, I feel like Windscape is, is potentially just sort of, uh, facing less competition and less other alternatives and less sort of, and less sort of barriers to overcome in terms of, um, in, in terms of, you know, being able to, you know, kind of monetize that solution and uh, it's, it's global and I can see channels that allow them to scale this really fast. Again, I, I love the, it's electric solution for cities. I think it's, they're addressing one of the biggest problems EVs will face in cities period, which is, you know, charging kind of when you're parked at home. Um, uh, so I, I, it's a, it's a tough choice, but I think I'd probably pick one's kid. I I would go the same way. And it's, I mean, it's, it's kind of idiot proof and it's a win, win, win situation. There's not a lot of competition. It's something that wind farms just should be doing and will be doing. And the existing solutions are much more expensive. So I would, I would say then windscape is our windscapes are number one and it's electric would be number two, but everybody who pitched congratulations just for, just for being um, on being chosen and for uh, for transparency's sake, um, was made aware during the program that uh, apparently one of the one of a companies may or may not be as uh, on the up and up as as possible. So if anyone was interested in H two refinery, I don't know what the status is, but there apparently have been allegations and issues with the founders in the past. I had a I had a good recommendation when we brought them on, but I just want to put that out there in case anyone's watching this in the in the future to make sure you do your due diligence. Uh congratulations to Winscape. Congratulations to all the founders for presenting. Craig, do you want to tell people more about you and anything um where people can find you? Uh, you, uh, uh, in terms of like social media, I'm, I'm active on Twitter, uh, at, at Craig Lawrence and I'm on LinkedIn and our website, energy transition ventures.com. Um, uh, you know, just feel free to reach out via any one of those, any one of those channels. Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, really interested in following up on, uh, with, with everyone here. So, um, uh, we'll, that's probably the, the the all I can say there. That's your invitation to reach out, folks. And I am Matt uh, at Forward VC. We invest in companies that move the world forward. We're a climate syndicate focused on the top pre-seed and seed stage climate companies around the world. 
if you're operating in Europe, North America, Israel, or Australia and changing the world in big ways, be sure to reach out. And if you're an investor interested in those topics and want your money to make a difference, look into forward.vc. None of this is solicitation. None of this is investment advice. We're doing this for fun. And I hope you guys have had fun. Until next time, the Startup Tank, hit the subscribe bell on YouTube or wherever you're listening to this. Give Craig a holler. It sounds like he's interested. And go, uh, yeah, go build your business and change the world. Cheers, folks.